uh, working hard to demonstrate to people that the world we live in is frustrating. Uh, the actual word for vanity uh, or frustration, as we said, that the Hebrew word is abel, uh, which means breath or vapor or wind. Uh, the, the idea of vanity is in there because it's fleeting. It's, like a, it's like, just like a breath. It's here and then it's gone. And he says that's the way so many of these things are in our life is uh, that they can only last so, hard, so long and they're hard to get your hands around. Just like Adam's son Abel, which is the same word, he was named Abel because his life was short. Uh, because, of course, he was killed, murdered by his brother Cain. And this writer of Ecclesiastes is wanting you and me to see that the curse that was given by God to Adam, which had immediate repercussions in his own family on his son, uh, is still having its effects. And that's basically what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, is look, the curse is in effect. And it makes this life, this world, pretty broken. And that explains the world we live in. And so we're going to hear today how the, the writer coaches us on how we live in light of the, the broken world. We're covering a big portion of scripture today, the, the second half of chapter one and all of chapter two. I'm going to break it up in how we read it, though. We're just going to read verses 12 through 18 out of chapter one to begin with, uh, and then we'll read the other portions as we go through just to save a little time. Hear the Lord in his word. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is to be done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Uh, the, this is the word of the Lord so far. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand and put these encouraging pieces together. <laughs> Father, as, as we come to this section of, of, of Scripture that you've set apart, you inspired by your Holy Spirit that has been uh, in the canon uh, for thousands of years, uh, it's dark. We ask that you'd help us. We need your spirit who prompted it to be written, to be compiled. Your spirit to teach us what you're telling us, what this means in each of our lives. Father, people here, we've got folks across the spectrum from times of great joy, uh, like the baptism of Ford, uh, to folks who are in sorrow, uh, being recently bereaved or... Uh, having hard news or having physical difficulties or family difficulties, maybe had fights in the church car on the way to church this morning. You know what each of us needs to hear this morning, Father. So minister to us through your word. 
uh, as the sword of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes is so puzzling that it's interesting in reading all the different commentators. I'm reading commentators who, who, uh, scholars who love the Bible and trust the Bible and believe it's God's word, and they're just all over the map on so many aspects of what this means and that means about who, who wrote it. I mentioned last week that most uh, scholars uh, today think it was probably not Solomon. As I mentioned last week, uh, the Proverbs overtly says it's from Solomon. The Song of Songs, or also known as the Song of Solomon, overtly says it's written by Solomon. Ecclesiastes sort of makes it sound like it's coming from Solomon, but there are uh, clues that, that give questions to that. It says it's the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, which there's, o- there's only one of those who is a, uh, that, that, well, there are a lot of kings in Jer- Jerusalem, but the, who we think of as wisdom. Uh, the verse, first verse that we just read today says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I mean, it was immediately after Solomon, the kingdom was split, and all the other kings were kings over Judah or Israel, and the ones over Israel were not in Jerusalem. And so we think, okay, that sounds like it'd be Solomon. But he doesn't say he's Solomon. And really, after verse 12 in chapter 2, it doesn't really make royal references. But a lot of the, the, the idea of the wisdom writer is to convey that this is knowledge that Solomon would have compiled. In fact, also, when you read 1 Kings, in which we hear about Solomon being receiving all this wealth, having all these concubines, having accumulating so much of this wisdom, at the end, he actually just slides spiritually. And there's no record of his repentance or of his waking up, as it would sound like in this book. And so that, those are some of the reasons uh, that, that there's, it's appropriate to, to question um, why Solomon actually wrote that. But what we want to look at this morning, and I want to hopefully move with you through all these passages somewhat quickly, is first of all, the writer, in, in what we start today, it's a new section. The previous section just said the words, it's, it's kind of an introduction by the compiler. A lot of scholars say that he actually starts quoting the preacher, Koheleth in Hebrew, the, the word in Greek is Ecclesiastes, but the word, you know, you, you think of church, ecclesial, ecclesiology, that just means the assembly. The ecclesia, the church, is just the assembly of believers. That's what the word actually means. And so this is really somebody who assembles people to talk to them. So it might have been a preacher. It was probably at least speaking to the group, uh, talking about wisdom. But all of a sudden now he, he switches and he says, I, the preacher, uh, am, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So there's an introduction that would have been typical of that the different ancient Near East kings used in their autobiographical openings. So he's, and he's going to tell us first that he's looking at wisdom for meaning, for meaning. Secondly, he's, he's going to look at pleasure for meaning. And then thirdly, he's going to make some conclusions. And we do close out actually with a little good news today. So hang in there. Don't fall asleep yet. Uh, so first of all, he looks to wisdom for meaning. And he, he tells us, that he has this plan uh, to do what may have been the most extensive search in history. He tells us in verse 13, 
and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. That's pretty thorough. Okay, everything he's going to see in this world, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but he gets the point across, okay? This wasn't just some afternoon that he was sitting out on the veranda of the palace and drinking a mint julep or whatever they drank back then and, and pondering the meaning of life. This is research, okay? This is an investigation. He poured himself into wrestling with these things. But what's his conclusion? The next, right after this, he goes on to say, it's an unhappy business or an unhappy task that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, the word behold means look, look. It's all vanity. It's all striving after wind. In other words, looking for meaning in this life is pretty much of a drag. It's going to just be frustration. It, it, you feel like you're not getting anywhere. It looks like it doesn't matter. When he says it's striving after the wind, I mean, what is it like to try to, you know, grab hold of the wind? You know, it's fleeting. It do, doesn't have content. You just can't get your hands around. Why, why is this here? But, but he, he actually goes through and gives us some reasons how he comes to that. In verse 15, the first reason he says, he, he says, what is crooked, he gives this proverb, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And the reason he says that is he says, wisdom can't necessarily change reality. In other words, if God, by putting his curse on the creation as a result of the sin, okay, the curse came because of Adam's sin. And God said, you still, I'm still commanding you to be fruitful and to multiply and to be working and to doing all the things I've called you to do. He says, it's just going to fight back against you. It's going to be hard. It's like the, the curse when, when he uh, was talking to Eve and he says, you know, bearing children is going to be hard. He says, your marriage is going to be hard. You're still called to do it. And there's richness and, 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 and wonder in it, but it's also going to be hard. And basically, like we've said, Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, that's true. And here he says, if it's crooked because of the fall, a lot of times you can be wise, but it doesn't mean you can fix it. You know, if you have children, you understand how that can be. You can even look at and, and receive the things they're saying or the things they're doing, and you know why, why they're off base. But getting them to change is a whole other story. Amen? A lot of the times. When they're real young, you can kind of get at least the external uh, adjustments and behavior kicking in. And that's what he's talking about. It's, and that's why, again, Paul agrees with it. Paul, I mentioned last week in Romans 8, he said, for the creation was subjected to Futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. He's talking about the same thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. In fact, you know, whoops, did we lose? You got Romans eight twenty. Sorry, I marked it here that I put it on there, so you can look it up on your own. Paul says that, and when he says subjected to futility. The word futility that Paul uses is the exact same word. Remember, the Bible that Paul was reading was called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And that, in that generation, that was the Bible that Jesus and, and the disciples were using. It was the Greek, because that's the language they were speaking. It was Greek. And the word in Greek that translated Ecclesiastes vanity was the word that he used for futility. And what Paul was saying was, the writer of Ecclesiastes was right. The world is subjected to this vanity, this futility. 
because of the one who subjected it. And so there are things that are broken in the world. You know, we're, we're Americans. We're fixers, right? We want to get things fixed. And there are a lot of things that God gives us the capacity to fix. But part of the vanity, part of the frustration with it is that it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> Mark and I were at dinner with a couple last night, and he's an engineer, and, and they've got a, a, a young daughter, and uh, he, he and his, uh, uh, one of the grandfathers uh, put together a, a kitchen for her, for, for their daughter, uh, the four-year-old kid. And he said, he said, I went into it thinking, yeah, I'm an engineer, I'll probably do this in an hour. Four hours later, <laughs> he was crying with uh, Paul, Creation has been subjected to futility. You got short screws and long screws, and they don't go in the same place. You know, we, you know how that goes. You just came out of Christmas. There's a second reason that caused him to see this, and that, that's that he's, well, I'm sorry. As he looks into wisdom, he says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are in Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience with wisdom and knowledge. So he's talking about this top-of-the-line wisdom, this, this utter knowledge. Now, here's a little clue why this might not have been Solomon. Because notice he says, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. Only David was in Jerusalem before him, so that wouldn't sound like that big of a boast, right? So the, the, the point is, this is somebody who, who has accumulated a lot of wisdom. And what he says is that all is vanity with regard to wisdom. And he closed out that portion that we read by saying, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says, not only does wisdom not guarantee to change reality, it also can increase sorrow. You know, he looks at, you've got wisdom and knowledge, you've got madness and folly on the other side. And he says, you know, bottom line, finding hope in either one is pretty fruitless. You get more knowledge, a lot of times you get more trouble because of what you know. You want to be careful what you ask for. You know, I mean, this is the flip side of ignorance is bliss. Why do we say ignorance is bliss? What you don't know, sometimes can't, sometimes it'll hurt you, sometimes it won't hurt you. Sometimes it's better to not know. I mean, how many things do you wish you'd never been told? You know, I mean, ask Eve after her fruit feast. She wished she didn't know what she'd known. I mean, this is the reason why, I'm, you know, you know I, I purpose and, and in mercy on my parents. I, you know, I didn't, you know, they, they don't know all that I got into when I was in my teens because that knowledge would bring great sorrow. They know enough to have the sorrow anyway, but they, uh, <laughs> but now with, all, with what he's saying about wisdom and knowledge, that doesn't mean don't study. It doesn't mean don't seek to learn or acquire knowledge or, or expand your wisdom. Notice Ecclesiastes, if you, if you look in your Bible, mine right, right across the page from the end of Proverbs. This is connect. I mean, God gives all, the Proverbs talks about the glory and the richness of wisdom and of acquiring wisdom. It's not an accident these books are side by side. And as we talked about last week, that J.I. Packer says, you know, God gave us Proverbs to say, here are the principles, here are the general directions that my world works. But here's Ecclesiastes to say, but it gets a lot messier than that. Those aren't straight lines. Those are Proverbs. They're not laws. They're Proverbs. They're broad general truths. But Ecclesiastes tells us the way they unfold 
is a lot messier, a lot more gnarly than they come across when you just read Proverbs. You really need to read the two back to back. That's why Packer says that Ecclesiastes is a place that brings us wisdom. What he's saying, it's not that we don't acquire knowledge and seek wisdom. It's just realizing it doesn't guarantee meaningful life. Okay, wisdom it's God's gift, but you don't recognize, if you don't recognize it as God's gift and see it through God's lens, it'll, you'll be in deep weeds. You'll find a lot of vanity. So the first thing he looked at was wisdom for meaning. Then, then he looks at pleasure, an area, you know, all sorts of people look for, to find meaning in, in pleasure. Uh, some people seek to escape through pleasure. But let me read to you verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. He says, I said in my heart, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. Okay, so he was using his wisdom, his research. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says, he did it all to the fullest. He sums it up in verse 10. He says, whatever my eyes desired... I kept my heart from no pleasure. He tried everything. In fact, he even goes, and I mean, just the list of things that he tried. They pretty much covered all the bases, right? Laughter, pleasure, wine, folly. He lists the great works, the things he'd accomplished that would make him great. He had houses, plural, vineyards. He grew his own wine. He had gardens. He said he had parks, pools. When he talks about slaves bought and bred, you've just got to understand that culture. First of all, it's not condoning that. It's not saying it's a, that that was a good thing. But culturally, that said that he had great expanses of possessions. He had herds and flocks. He had silver, gold. He had the treasure of kings. Think of the queen of Sheba, how she was bringing money. You know, when we, when we do take our offering, we're honoring the king. When you have got a king and you come before a king, you bring something with you to show him that you honor and recognize him as king. So that happened to Solomon all the time. When people came to see him, they would come with a gift. But he was a king, so it had to be a king-worthy gift. So he had the treasures of kings. He said he had singers and concubines. 
I mean, he, he, he tried it to the max. He owned it to the max. He played to the max. And he says he found it all fleeting like the wind. You know, he, he, had, this, he had pleasure of just, you know, having fun, of parting his brains out, of attaining, of accomplishing, of having these impressive achievements. And he experienced what Derek Kidner calls the paradox of hedonism, that the more you hunt for pleasure, the less you find. It's interesting. He doesn't say that he was seeking escape by chasing these things. I mean, a lot of people do that, but he, he said he was testing it out. This is research. Sounds like fun research. <laughs> in, our, in our psychologized culture, we see people dive into this kind of living, and, it's, and we're quick to chalk it up to escapism or, or avoiding pain. And sometimes it is that. You know, but I remember you know, my mom trying to explain my pursuit of those things when I was in college, before I became a Christian, and later, later on reflecting back, and she was trying to explain some kind of response to her or my father's parenting or the way they were, and I said, look, no offense, I hate to burst your bubble, but I wasn't even thinking about you. I just wanted to have fun, and I was stupid and reckless, and I thought my life would be great if I tried these things. It had nothing to do with any pain or any avoidance in my heart. It was just stupidity. So be, so be careful as a parent to not always beat yourself up to think it's your fault that these things happen. They're just, I mean, he was, he was doing research. I wasn't doing research. I was <laughs> just getting in trouble. The, his conclusion in verse 11, he says, Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. He keeps coming back to the same place, doesn't he? I mean, have you ever seen a dog chasing its tail? Or, or Westy Bonnie, when she was a puppy, she would she'd see that tail and being a terrier, thought it was a critter and had to go after it. And she'd just, you know, spin around and around. It's pretty amusing. And that's kind of what, that's striving after the wind. That's what he's talking about. It doesn't accomplish much, especially when you clamp down on it. It's, yeah. an example of pleasure, we, we just all went through a Christmas, right? It's been December, you know, looking forward to all the, the, the new toys, to the uh, joyful times we're going to have together, to the new Lexus in the driveway with a bow around it. <laughs> Anybody get that? <laughs> um, you know, now it's over, right? We're in January, fast, it's behind us. Right? Back in the dark, dead season of, of winter, although <laughs> we had to turn on the air conditioning in January, so so much for that. Uh, the Lord knew we were studying Ecclesiastes, so he tried to go a little gentle on you with the weather. <laughs> not, not feeling like January. You know, the point, pleasure isn't evil, according to what he's saying. He's saying it, it just, it's not ultimate. And it's been fascinating. We're getting ready to start this Sunday school, uh, this class this morning, uh, of, of thinking about sexuality and gender and with all the LGBT uh, issues that are being talked about in our culture, just to say, you know, what does God say about these things in the Scripture? How are we to think about them? And it, I, before I started working on my Sunday school this week, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes, and I was just so struck about how these dovetail. And I didn't plan it at all, but how... So much of 
both in the world at large, but even in the church, as we misunderstand and misthink about these areas, it comes from our hope, putting this ultimate hope either in sex and eroticism or in, in, in marriage as the, the, not that they're things, they're things that God calls us to and God gives us pleasure in them. But if they become that in which you anchor to put your hope, this is what's going to make my life work. That's going to end in sorrow. It's going to give you some vanity a lot of times. So his conclusions, as he works through all this, and there's a big long section here, hang through. I'm going to read verses 12 through 23 of chapter 2. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. In other words, nobody behind me is going to find anything new than what I've seen. He says, then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all who have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation and even in the night his heart doesn't rest. This also is vanity. Here he compares again, once again, this wisdom versus folly. Folly is, when he talks about folly, it's about living as if God isn't there. Living that, 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 what you think and what you determine is, is what is your reality, that you're going to live for the reasons that you want and for the, you invent your own truth. He acknowledges in this life, wisdom practically is more helpful. That's why he says, you know, I saw there is more gain in wisdom than folly. He says, look, it's like, if you have wisdom, it's like having light. If you're walking down a dark hallway and you've got light, that works a lot better than if you don't have any light. He says, so there isn't, it is, it is preferential to have it. He says, but the bottom line is, for all the practical help that wisdom can give you, it ends up being just as vaporous as folly. Because you're going to be wise or you're going to be foolish, but either way, you're going to end up dead. And forgotten for all you accomplish with your wisdom. People aren't going to remember it. And that leads to his final conclusion, which is really dark. He says, I hated life. 
Gazan says, I gave my heart up to despair. No, that's a bad day at the office. He, he, he recognizes that for all you do, for all the great strides that you might make or the wonderful institutions you might establish, number one, you're going to be forgotten. I mean, your main name might be preserved you know, on a plaque or something, but eventually people won't remember who that name is on the plaque. That's just another name on a plaque. Or secondly, somebody picks up where you left off, and they, they have either you know somebody who becomes the owner of your company or, or, or takes your role that you were in before or passes on to your children after you die, and you know, they may end up blowing the whole thing. That's what happened to Solomon. His son Rehoboam, the kingdom split under him. And then it just went to hell in a ham basket with both the northern and the southern kingdom. All that Solomon did, boom, it was gone. bust your tail, you work hard to make a contribution for your toil, and what does it get to you? He says your work is vexation, it's hard, your days are full of sorrows, you try to keep this dream alive, your, your nights are plagued by sleeplessness because you worry about the task you're trying to accomplish, make it happen to the people you're trying to help with your work. And he says, whew, why bother? The good thing is he doesn't stop there. He, he wraps up with these last couple verses and Verses 24 to 26 at the end of chapter 2 with a little good news. He says there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat? Or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says that on the one hand, when he says there's nothing better for a person that should eat and drink and find enjoyment is toil. He says, look, it's toil. That's the promise in Genesis chapter 3. This life will be toil. But he said, God has given us the gift to enjoy the things we're going through to take out of it what we can. Don't seek to find hope, to find life in what you're going to accomplish because it may be erased. It may be forgotten. It may be wiped out. Whether that's what you do in your vocation, whether it's what you do in your home, that's out of your control. But he says, realize what's been given to you, your gifts are a gift from God. And be thankful for what you have at the given moment. Don't think, if only I had this, then I'd have life. You know, if, only I had, if only I was married, then I'd have life. If only I was single, then I'd have life. If only I had a home, then I'd have life. If only I didn't have this home, I'd have life. If, those are the things that, that try to grab ultimate meaning to us. And he says, the hand of God has given us the opportunities we have. Just embrace that. And he also, on the flip side, says... God does bless those who are pleasing to him. He says God gives us wisdom and knowledge and joy. But God does care. You know, recognize those are a gift of his grace. He doesn't give it to you because you're good. He doesn't give it to you because you look good or because you have done good things. He's pleased with you because he's chosen to be pleased with you. He's set his love on you 
for his reason. That's why it's unshakable. That's why those covenants we were reading about earlier that he made with Abraham and that he confirmed through Moses and through David and ultimately through Jesus. That's why they persist. That's why we could sing that Jesus paid it all, that he took my debt and he gave me resurrected life. That is immovable. But he also says, the fool, those who reject God, there's a penalty. He says, that is the ultimate vanity in chasing after the wind from ignoring and rejecting God and saying, I know how to make life work. I don't need you. So he gives the promise of blessing. Enjoy it for what it is, but also the warning of, of leaving him out of the picture. So let's pray and ask him to help us live that in our lives. Father, you know the things in each one of our lives this week uh, that are going on that we may not even know we're going to walk into Monday morning or Thursday morning are going to come across our path uh, that are going to be vexation, that are going to feel like vanity of vanities. They're going to have us crying out with uh, Ecclesiastes. Help us remember that what we have is, is a gift from you, that you've given us ability, you've given us opportunity. You don't guarantee what's going to come out at the end, but you have given us what you've given us. And you ask us to be faithful with the manna you've given us today and to enjoy it, that it came from your hands. And so we thank you for that. Help us to be thankful for the simple things you give us, Father. We give ourselves to you. Ask you to be, keep working in us. Walk with us with your spirit during this week as we seek to live this out, trusting in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.